Amen. Well, what do we say to that when we think about what the Lord did on that cross for us and uh, the mercy we experienced there? What a blessing. Let me have you turn in your Bible this morning to the book of Jonah. We are continuing our journey with Jonah for these four brief chapters. I was thinking as I was trying to think of how to work this sermon out in my own life about the power of a good story. Stories are very powerful vehicles. They are compelling ways in which important life-shaping truths are often communicated to us. They bring truth near. They help us to grab it by grabbing us. They make truth very vivid. Stories have a way of bringing truth up close and personal. They make it memorable. What we learn from a story makes a lasting impact on our thinking. They make truth portable, and they make truth permanent. They help us to grasp concepts because we see them lived out in a compelling way. Now, let me give you some examples of this. How many of you have heard the the little line, tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme? How many of you have heard that? Do you have a particular story that you connect that with? Beauty and the Beast. And by the way, there's a beautiful Beauty and the Beast performance coming up not too far from us, which is why I thought of that. Tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme. And when you think about Beauty and the Beast, here's a lesson that you learn. Don't judge a book by its cover, right? How about Cinderella? If the shoe fits, what? Wear it. How about Aladdin and the magic lamp? Be careful what you wish for, right? Snow White. What about Snow White? Appearances are deceiving. Things are not always what they seem. There is more here than meets the eye. You see what I'm saying? These are stories that you grew up hearing. They happen to be fairy tales. Sometimes they're legends. Sometimes uh, they have a moral to them. But all of these powerful stories that have been part of our life communicate very powerful truths And all we have to do is remember the story, and we can make our way back to the truth. But what if the story is true? You know something about true stories? True stories have true power to communicate truth in a true way. True stories have true power to communicate truth in a true way. And what we're reading today and what we've been doing now for a number of weeks is we have been listening to a true story. And if we will let the truth that that true story is communicating impact our life, it will have a deep and very powerful impact. And so this morning, as we jump into the story, let me set it up for you. We are jumping into the second scene of a story. The book of Jonah actually unfolds like you would see a story unfold. And each part of the story has important lessons that it teaches. And so in the first act, or in the first part of the story, we met Jonah. 
And we began to see what was really going on early on in the story. Jonah was a prophet. He was a servant of the Lord who for many years had ministered faithfully in the work God had called him to do. He had been serving the Lord in a hard place and in a dark space. We spent some time in the book of James, and James talked about what it's like to have to serve God in a hard place and in a dark space, and Jonah has been doing that for many years. He has been serving God in the northern kingdom where God's people have been busy and they have been at hard at work sinning away. They have embraced idolatry. They have participated in immorality, and they are celebrating injustice in their midst. And Jonah has been praying for them, and Jonah has been preaching to them, and he has been warning them about God's impending judgment. God sees what you're doing. God knows what you're up to, and God has said some things about that behavior. And then as he preaches to them, he walks away, and like Elijah and Elisha before him, he prayed fervently to God that God would work in their heart, and that instead of mercy, God would give to them, or instead of wrath, God would give to them mercy. And God answered that prayer, didn't he? And he said to Jonah, Jonah, I have looked down and I have seen my people that I love and I see everything they're doing. I see all of their immorality. I see all of the injustice and I see all of the idolatry, but I see also all of the anguish. I see all of the trouble they're in and there is no one to deliver. And so Jonah, I want you to go to that wicked king Jeroboam and I want you to tell him that I'm about to send him mercy. And Jonah was good with that. But then God decided to send mercy to someone else. And he says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to pack your bags. You're going on a mission trip for me. And I'm sending you uh, about 500 miles from here. And I want you to go and tell the Assyrians that their wickedness has come up before me. Just like the idolatry and the immorality and the injustice of my people was something that I saw. Here are people who are pagan idolaters and they're wholly given over to idolatry and immorality and injustice. And that has come up before me. And I want you to go there and I want you to preach to them. And Jonah said, no way, no how, I'm not doing it. And you remember the story because we've spent a couple of weeks in that first part of the story. Jonah gets up and he goes down to Joppa and then he goes down into a boat and then he heads out to the Timbuktu of his day to the port of Tarshish. And in this first scene, Jonah has been fleeing from the Lord He decides, I'm done with this prophet ministry as much as I've loved it. I'm done with this special place on the planet where God's presence is as much as I've loved it. I'm done with all of this because what God is about to do is completely unacceptable to me. And so he flees from the Lord. But the Lord was not allowed, about to let Jonah get away without a fight. And so like a mighty warrior, he gathers the wind in his hands and he hurls it like an unseen javelin and it lands on the ocean and pretty soon an amazing storm comes up. 
And that storm is in the very path of the ship where Jonah has laid down to sleep, ignorant of the will of God, ignorant of the needs of those around him, and ignorant or, or, or willfully ignorant of his own desperate state. So with that scene in mind, the curtain rises now, and we come to scene number two. And scene number two has four parts to it, and each part has an important part to play in this particular part of the story. And so as you open up the curtain and you see a snoring prophet below deck and pandemonium above deck, the very first thing that that God wants you to notice in the story is you, you could call this part of the scene fearful desperation. There is fearful desperation on account of something that God has wrought. God has acted in a certain way, and because of the way that God has acted, it has created fearful desperation in the heart of people. And you can see that in verses 5 and 6. You see the fear of the desperate sailors. These men were seasoned sailors. They were well acquainted with the sea. They were experienced in the art of navigation. In other words, when you got on a ship the size of this one that was about to take a journey some 2,000 miles away from where Jonah was to the port of Tarshish, you didn't go with weekend sailors. These were professional sailors who knew the sea, they knew the art of sailing, and were well experienced with everything they could potentially encounter on a journey. And there's no evidence in this text that they thought for a moment that the journey was ill-advised or ill-timed. There's nothing in the text like you find in Acts 27. You remember in Acts 27, the Apostle Paul is about to get on the ship, and the ship is about to take him to Rome, and, and he looks at the captain of the ship, and he said, this is a very, very bad time to sail. This is the wrong season to take an ocean journey. This is after the fast, And everybody knows that after the fast, there are winds that come up, the currents change. And so this is a very bad time for this ship to be going on a journey. There's nothing like that in this text. And as they take their journey, the storm comes out of nowhere. The storm is fierce and it is ferocious. And it is so bad that the ship isn't just about to sink the ship is actually threatening to break apart, to break in half. And these seasoned sailors were absolutely terrified. By the way, in verse 5, this is the first of three references in this story where you read about the sailors being afraid. And what you're going to follow as as the scene unfolds is the fear of the sailors leads them in a healthy direction And Jonah, who in verse 1 is afraid, and you find out in chapter 4 why he's afraid, that fear takes him in a very bad direction. And that's the way it is with us. Sometimes God uses fear, the right kind of fear, to drive us to God, but sometimes we can let something we're afraid that God is about to do absolutely drive us away from God. And we're going to see that play out in the story. So, Here they are, each man begins to pray to their individual God for help and for salvation. Every one of those sailors had a personal God. 
They may have been from different countries. Every country had a regional idol. And so they began to cry out to their idols. This is no perfunctory praying like you would pray at the beginning of a journey. This is no little sort of ritual that you sort of do to make sure everybody's happy and the gods are all good as you go. This is desperate praying. This is passionate praying. This is fervent praying because they are convinced that without external supernatural help, they are going to meet certain death. The situation is so dire, death is so imminent, that they do a desperate thing. They have been entrusted with valuable cargo. And in the ancient world, if you took the cargo on, you were responsible for that cargo until it got delivered. And you were financially liable for any loss. And here are these men, and they are so desperate for their lives that they begin to hurl this cargo over the ship. By the way, God has already hurled something in the book. He hurled a great wind. And now the sailors are hurling precious cargo over the side. Pandemonium reigns on the deck. And and as we're watching all of this noise and we're seeing all of this desperate activity, the camera sort of pans back and out of the corner of your eye, you kind of turn and you're just in time to see somebody disappear down below deck. And it's Jonah. And while pandemonium is reigning on top, He goes down as he sees all of this fervent praying and desperate activity instead of calling out to the true God of heaven and instead of lifting his finger to help, he goes down below deck and he goes down into his bed for one final sleep before he meets his fate along with these pagan sailors. How different than the Apostle Paul in Acts 27 who when he found himself on a ship that really did break up in the midst of a storm that really did destroy the boat, he stood in the midst of everybody on that ship and he said this, I urge you to take heart. Paul said, I want you to take heart. There will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night has stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and who I worship. And he said, do not be afraid. Verse 25, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as God has told me. Jonah could have done this. Jonah could have stood in front of all these men and he could have said, I know the God who caused all of this. I can pray to him. I can lift my voice. But instead of doing that, and instead of lifting his hand and opening his mouth to encourage the heart of these pagan sailors, like Paul did centuries later, instead he goes down, and then he goes down to bed, and then he goes down to sleep. Jonah's sinful disobedience made him deaf to God and blind to the desperate needs around him. And by the way, that's what disobedience does to us. Doesn't it? When we pull a Jonah, doesn't it make us deaf to God? I mean, we hear him, but we don't hear him. Doesn't it make us blind? We see what's going around us, but, but, but we don't see. And as we kind of close out this little part of the scene, basically what we discover is that while Jonah may be deaf and blind, God is not deaf and he is not blind. And that's the next thing that happens as we move through the scene. The next little piece is all about what God does. There is sovereign revelation that is about to happen. You can see this in verses 7 through 9. The suddenness of the storm, 
and its ferocity made the sailors so afraid, and, and they had never really encountered anything like this, and so they concluded rightly that this storm did not come about as a natural storm. That there were supernatural origins for the storm. And when their desperate praying and their desperate activity could not avail the help of the gods or prevail over the storms, they decided to seek out the cause for the tempest that had come against them. It must really have been a truly desperate situation for them while the waves are crashing over and the the ship's about to split apart, for them to stop everything and say to one another, we have got to appeal to the gods to find out who's behind this. And so these seaworthy sailors, knowing that this storm had come upon them on account of some great evil or offense committed by somebody on board the vessel, decided to appeal to providence to find out the cause. And so there is providential revelation. They said, come, let us cast lots. Now in Jonah's day, the pagan nations had a ton of ways that they could use to find out things from the gods. If they were curious to know what the gods were thinking, there were all kinds of ways available to them. For example, they could could look at nature and they could assign meaning to certain things that were unusual in nature, like unusual animal behavior. Oh, that's a sign from the gods. Or maybe the color of the sky would be unusual. Oh, that's an omen. That's a sign from the gods. Or one of the most powerful ones would be an eclipse. Oh, wait a second. God, there, there's something big up with the gods. There's an eclipse. Maybe they would offer a sacrifice to their gods, and uh, they would cut open the sacrifice, and they would examine one of the organs. Maybe it would be the liver or the kidney or the entrails. And they would look at the condition of these, and they would say, good or bad omen from the Lord. In a particularly desperate scenario, they might choose one of their best warriors or one of their most beautiful maidens and adorn them in all of their finery and load them down with gifts and send them to the gods so they could deliver the appeal personally to the gods. And all of these ways were prohibited by the true God for his people Israel. But God had given his people away before the Bible had been fully given. Before the Holy Spirit had completed revelation, God had given his people away And he had promised to engage in this way for them if they would use it. And it was called the casting of the lots. And you can read about this in Proverbs 16, verse 33, where God said, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, that of all the ways that these pagan sailors could have picked to find out what was going on. They picked the one way that God said his people could use. I mean, if I'm Jonah, I'm like, oh, of all the things you could have picked, you had to pick the lots. Because he knew the moment the lots came out, he knew where they were going, right? It's not like Jonah was thinking, oh, I wonder where this is going. As soon as he saw the lots, he knew the game was up, right? He knew this. He knew his number was up, and sure enough, the lots were cast, and they came out on him. 
And now the soldiers begin this investigation. And you know how they begin an investigation? They don't start with accusations. They start with questions. Somebody once said, accusations tend to harden our will, but questions stir our conscience. And so these soldiers, or these sailors rather, begin to ask Jonah four questions. What is your occupation? Who are you? Where do you come from? What is your country? And who are your people? And for the first time, Jonah opens his mouth and speaks in the book. And there is his reluctant identification. Jonah confesses his identity. I am a Hebrew. And you're like, okay, whatever. But the sailors stood up and paid notice. Because everybody in Jonah's day knew what a Hebrew was. Everybody knew about these people. These were the people whose God drowned Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. These were the people whose God tumbled down the walls of the largest armed city in the land where they went in, a city called Jericho. These were the people whose King David was granted victory over all of his enemies. These were the people whose King Solomon was so famous and he built this magnificent temple. Everybody in Jonah's day knew who the Hebrew people were. And then they knew what a Hebrew prophet was. Jonah said, I confess that I fear the Lord. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. Now, what does it mean for Jonah to fear the Lord? Well, in this context, it means this. Jonah says, I am a Hebrew and I serve Yahweh. I am a servant. I worship, I fear. The word can also mean serve. I serve Yahweh. I, I, I am his official servant. Now, everybody in Jonah's day knew who the Hebrews were, but they also knew a lot about the Hebrew God, Yahweh. We call him the Lord. Everybody knew that he was the most powerful God in the cosmos. Everybody had heard what happened to Dagon, the Philistine God, when he tried to stand in front of this God. They knew the story of how he had fallen down in front of this God. They knew the story of the gods of the Hittites and the Canaanites who were powerless to stop the people when this God was fighting for them. Ask Baal what happened to his 850 prophets and priests in the days of Elijah and Elisha. These sailors were like, of all the things that could have, this is the most fortuitous thing, of all the people that could have landed on our boat, we just happened to land the best kind of a person. We happened to land a servant of the God who is causing all of this. Jonah had told them, I serve the Lord, the God who made the dry land and the sea. Those were the two places they were most interested in at the moment. They were most interested in the sea that was raging. They wanted a lot less of that. And they were very interested in the dry land. And here was, of all things, on their boat, the very person who could talk to the God who made the sea and who made the land. And the problem is, Jonah isn't talking to God. Right prophet, right conclusion, but Jonah isn't talking to God right now because Jonah is ticked at God. 
Here are these people, and they're like, of all things, we got the right guy, so I, no wonder the lots fell on you. No wonder when we cast a lot, this God who, who's taking mercy on us pointed you out, and so what's up? And Jonah tells him what he did. And he confesses his sinful disobedience. I'm fleeing from the presence of this God. Verse 10 says, he told them this. And everything changes. And that's the end of the little next piece. And that brings us to the third little part of this scene. And that is, everything's about to get manifested. God is about to do some major manifestation in the hearts of everybody. There is horrified indignation in verse 10. The soldier, or the sailors rather, look at Jonah and they say, what is it that you have done? And the second thing that you see, or the second time that you see their fear is, is again in verse 10. These men were exceedingly afraid. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of what Jonah had done. Jonah, what have you done? Now, they already knew what he had done because he told them. So this is not them asking for more information. This is expressing horrified outrage at what he had done and how he had recklessly endangered their life. Jonah, are you kidding me? We thought you were going to rescue us. We thought you're on this boat because we're in this storm. Obviously, the gods are against us. The sea has risen up against us. And you're the one person that can deliver us. And, and instead, we find out that you're the reason for the whole thing. Because of your disobedience. What have you done? You know, sometimes God puts that question in the mouth of people who have been affected by our disobedience. What have you done? This is not why. This is not, it's not like I want an explanation. It's what have you done? In other words, how could you have done this, Jonah? What have you done? And then they ask him, what shall we do? Jonah, what have you done? And then what shall we do with you? Given your position with God as his prophet. And given what you've done, surely you must know what to do and what we must do to appease his wrath. What an incredible opportunity for Jonah to repent. You know, when you and I set out on a path to go a different direction than where God wants us to go, he will oftentimes introduce people along the way to ask us these kind of questions. What are you doing here? This is not where you belong. What have you done? How, how, did, how in the world could you do this? And all along the way, there are places where God gives us what he gave Jonah, an opportunity to repent. To make, Jonah's made a good confession. He's confessed who he is. He's confessed who God is, and he's confessed what he's done. All that's missing now is for him to make a good repentance. And he won't do it. He resists. And that brings us to verse 12, which is Jonah's self-righteous justification. Look at verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down. Now think about this for a minute. Jonah has two options at this point. He's standing there. All the cards are on the deck. The, 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 the lot has been cast. Everybody knows everything. Jonah, we know who you are, we know who your God is, we know what you've done, and, and, and now we need to know what to do. 
And there are two paths in front of Jonah. Jonah can repent, and he can return, and he can submit. That's option number one, right? But Jonah is stubborn, and he is self-righteous. I've already decided, God, that this is not an option for me because I know what's coming. If I repent and I return to you, you're going to send me to Nineveh, and when I get to Nineveh, the very thing that I'm afraid of is going to happen. These sailors are afraid of stuff. They're afraid of the sea. They're afraid of me, and and so they're afraid. But I've got bigger fears and bigger fish to fry than these little sailors on this little boat about this little sea and this little storm. It's interesting, God calls it a great wind and a great storm, right? But in Jonah's mind, he minimizes all of that because he's got one overarching fear that when he gets to Nineveh, God is going to do something there that he is completely opposed to. God is going to show those monsters mercy. And these are the people, God, who are not part of your covenant. They're not part of your tribe. They're not part of your people. And you're going to show them mercy. And when you show them mercy, they're going to come in two generations and they're going to wipe out the people that I've spent my life ministering to. And I want to see this nation become great again. And if I go there, there's no hope of that because when I go there and you show mercy, it's, it's, it's the end for this nation. It's the end for my people. And that is not acceptable to me. So if you're going to put me in a place where I've got to choose to perish or to repent, I'm perishing. And you know, before we jump on Jonah too hard, we do the same thing. Have you ever had something that was so important to you or something that you felt was so significant that you were willing to justify a disobedience to protect it? Have you ever had a hill that you were so convinced was right that you were going to die on that hill? Have you, had, have you ever been on a ship that, that you were so convinced about your position that you were willing to go over the side, you were willing to go down with the ship, you were willing to die on the hill, even if it meant other people went down with you? You ever been there? Jonah says, I'm doing this because I care about your name even when you don't seem to care about your name. And I care about truth even when you don't seem to care about truth. And I care about righteousness way more than I think you do because if I were running the show, I would never be showing those people righteousness. I would never be showing those people mercy. And before I go there, I'm going to protect your name. I'm going to protect your honor. I'm going to protect what I think is the right way to go at this theologically, and I am willing to blow everything up to do it. You say, well, that would never happen to me. Hey, we blow our marriages up all the time over this, don't we? We blow our families up. How many churches have been split by this very kind of an attitude? This is the way it's going to be, and and, and by God, this is not coming in our church, and this is never going to happen here, and I don't care what God is doing, and I don't care what God says, I am dying on this hill, and I don't care what damage it does to this church, or what damage it does to people who are going to be in the aftermath of this, 
I don't care if they never darken the door of the church again. This church is going to have my idea of what righteousness looks like. Or this ministry, or this thing that I'm a part of. And God says, you've got to either repent or perish. And you say, perish. Perish. You don't need to give it a thought. You, I, I, you know, we probably need a little light moment here. So you remember in the pandemic, there was this little commercial that went around. Some guy was sitting there, and he was looking at the camera, and, uh, and, and he was given some options. What are you going to do? You have these choices. A, you can quarantine with your wife and kids, or B, B. He didn't even hear B. He already chose B. Right? You, ever, you, you remember that? Well, this is exactly what Jonah's doing. Repent and let me be sovereign, or B, B. I'm going to perish. And so he looks at the sailors and he says, do to me what God did to that wind. Do to me what you did earlier to the cargo. Hurl me over the side. And here again we see the pagans more concerned about things that matter to God than Jonah did. Because instead of doing this in verse 13, the men rode hard to get back to dry land but they could not, for the sea grew more tempestuous against them. And that brings us to the final thing in this scene, and that is transformation. Transformation. By the time we get to the end of this scene, a powerful thing has happened. The sailors who back in verse 5 were praying to idols are now praying to who? To God. How did that happen? There was humble intercession in verses 14 and 15. They turned from their idols to the true God and they began to call upon him. They asked his forgiveness for what they must do as they obeyed the word he had given them through Jonah. Jonah refused to obey the word he got from God directly. These people were going to obey the word that God had given them even through the mouth of a disobedient prophet. These sailors are concerned about two things that Jonah did not seem very, very concerned about at all. Number one, they were concerned about displeasing God. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. They were concerned about the life of a person who belonged to God. They were concerned about displeasing God. And number two, they were concerned about a person who belonged to God. Jonah didn't seem very concerned at all about disobeying God and displeasing him, and he certainly seemed very, very unconcerned about an entire city of people that God is later going to say belong to him. And I'm concerned. And so they do this. They trust in God's sovereignty. They say, you have done what pleased you. And then they obeyed and waited expectantly, and they hurled Jonah over. And immediately, immediately the sea became quiet. It ceased from its raging. I don't know what storm you're in. I don't know what the sea is like for you, but trust me, when you confess and you repent and you return to God, the storm inside you stops. And the storm inside you is always greater and more difficult than the storm outside you. And some of you have been in that storm for a while. 
we started Joan, and you're like, pastor, of all the books to pick, why this one? I'm planning a whole couple of weeks of vacation because when you get into chapter one and later when you get into chapter four, I don't want to be around for that. Couldn't you go to Genesis? There's, Genesis is a quiet book. Couldn't we do, how about Psalms? Let's do Psalms. John, Psalms is a praise book. You got to pick Jonah. Jonah's like, why the lots? You're like, why Jonah? You know why? Because the God of heaven knows. The God of heaven knows when you and I are running. The God of heaven knows where we're running to. And here's a little clue. He's there ahead of us. It's not like God's running behind us going, slow down, i got to catch up. He's ahead of us. He knows exactly where you're going. And he's using everything in nature and everything around you to get you exactly where you need to be for God to work in your life. And before you say, I don't care what it's going to do to me, I don't care what it's going to do to my family, I don't care what it's going to do to my ministry, pick me up and hurl me over the side, you do have another option. You can do what these sailors did. You can obey. You can repent. You can call out to the Lord. And when you do that, what happened for these sailors physically on the sea, what happened in your own heart spiritually, and the storm will stop. Now, you may still be in a boat that's shaking around for a bit, but the internal storm will stop. And then there's thankful dedication. Notice verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. This is the third and final time that the word fear shows up in this chapter tied to these sailors. They were greatly afraid when the storm hit. They feared exceedingly. They feared a great fear when they heard Jonah's identity and then they heard what he had done. And now everything's quiet. The storm is done. The boat is safe. Their lives are saved. And now they fear a very different kind of fear. It is reverential awe in the God who has done all of this. And so they turn to God They fear Yahweh. They are profoundly thankful to God. They offer sacrifices of of thanks and they commit themselves. They dedicate themselves to follow God. They vow vows. You know, there are just times in our life, aren't there, where we've got to turn from our idols. We've got to turn from the things we're trusting in. We've got to turn from whatever it is that gives us satisfaction or that gives us safety or that we perceive will make us significant or the thing that we value so much. And we've got to leave all of that behind and we just have to cling to God. And then God has to say to us, I am enough. I'm enough. And when that happens, it comes out of our heart, thankfulness to God. And commitment to God. God, I just, I want to follow you. I want to be yours. And you vow vows. You make promises. You, we, we did this a few weeks ago in our giving series as we saw the radical generosity of God. You know what came out of our hearts? Lord, we want to be like that. You've been so generous to us. We want to be generous back to you. And we gave thanks to God. And then we made commitments to God. And God has been giving seed for the sower. And he's putting that seed in your bag. And as you keep that vow, there is this great fear that you have, this reverential awe. You know, it's stunning when pagans pray better than prophets, isn't it? It's stunning when pagans pray better than prophets, and it's stunning 
when idolaters repent better than the child of a true God of heaven. You and I ought to be repenters. Well, what do we do with this story? The scene closes. It's quiet on the deck. When we open the scene, there was pandemonium above the deck and there was silence below deck. And when we end the scene, there is silence on the deck and below the ocean, there's a lot of activity about to happen. So we've kind of seen this reversal. And as we close the scene and the curtain comes down, what are the lessons we need to learn? Well, let me give you them very quickly. Disobedience is serious business. You and I can justify our disobedience in many spiritually sounding ways. Just like Jonah, I am doing this for the honor of God. I am not about to let this go on in my life or in the church or in this ministry and and we justify whatever disobedience. But whatever disobedience is and however we justify it, it is deadly serious business. Here's the second truth in this scene. When we sin willfully, God always pursues graciously. God is on a mission. He's pursuing you. He's been pursuing me. And what he's looking for is this, confession. Confession is powerful. Jonah's confession is how these pagans became believers. You say, well, Jonah was disobedient, but the truth wasn't disobedient. Jonah didn't save these sailors. The Lord did. And the Lord used the confession of a disobedient Hebrew prophet to bring pagan people to Jesus. Your confession is a very powerful tool. He said, I don't know what to do. I've I've ruined my marriage. I've ruined my kids. I've blown it up. Confess. And when you confess, you would be stunned at what God does. Forgiveness is available to anyone Pagan sailors who in the middle of a storm are paying to worthless idols or praying to worthless idols, they get it. Forgiveness is available to anyone, anywhere, anytime. It was available to Jonah, and it's available for you and for me. And when that forgiveness comes and genuine salvation comes, it brings personal transformation. We turn to God. Conversion. We thank God. Gratitude. We follow and serve God. Dedication. And here's the point. If God was willing to do this for these sailors, and if God desperately wanted to do this for Jonah, and God would do this for the Ninevites, on what grounds do you think God won't do it for you? I mean, when you sit there and you say, well, yeah, but that was the sailors, or yeah, that was the Ninevites, but I'm me, and I've blown it so many times, and I've committed so many sins, and I've done the same one so many times. There isn't forgiveness for me. That is a lie that somebody is whispering in your ear. There is gracious, abundant, merciful forgiveness to anyone, anywhere, anytime, because forgiveness is never you Earning it, it's always God giving it. Forgiveness is a gift. It is a gift. And God is a radically abundant giver. And so this morning, if you're standing where Jonah is and you've got a choice to make, make the right choice. Let the story 
and the truth of this true story truly impact you. Would you bow your heads this morning and let's pray and ask God to take this story and to embed it in us so that we will always be able to grasp it. Maybe you're here this morning and you're standing on your own deck and the ship you're on is in the middle of a storm and that storm is raging around inside you. And you know that the Spirit of God has pointed His finger right at you. As surely as those lots fell on Jonah, the Spirit of God is talking to you this morning. And you've got to decide, do I repent or do I perish? And before you answer that question, there was a man... another greater Jonah who came and he perished so you wouldn't have to. He is why mercy is actually just. And so if you ever wonder, does God love me? Would God take me back? Would God forgive me? Would God help me? Would God fix what I broke? Would God restore what I've ruined? Would God replace and replenish what I've lost? Just look at Jesus and you have your answer. God is not willing that any should perish. Whether it's a pagan sailor on a boat worshiping idols or an Assyrian nation full of wicked idolaters or a Hebrew prophet who should have known better God is not willing that any should perish. And by the way, by the time we get to the end of the book, everybody in the book has been rescued, even Jonah. And so maybe that's you this morning. And you would just lift your heart to the Lord and say, God, I want that mercy. I'm so tired of the storm. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of justifying. I'm tired of everything. I just want to repent. And I just want to return and I just want to submit. You say, well, I don't know how to do that. Tell God that. Well, I don't have any big theological words to use. Use little words. He understands little words just like he understands big words. Well, I'm not much of a talker. Say it in your heart. He can hear your voice internally as easily as he can hear it externally. Just talk to Jesus. Lord, that's what we want to do. Would you help us to do it? In Jesus' name, amen.